New York City is taking the next step in its life sciences leadership with Spark Kipps Bay, a first-of-its-kind innovation, jobs, and education center, and we want you to be a part of it. New York City Economic Development Corporation is welcoming proposals from future-focused partners to help create Spark Kipps Bay's academic, healthcare, and life sciences campus in Manhattan. Visit edc.nyc slash science park to get involved. You're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. The FDA recently asked the six marketed CAR-T therapies to add a new boxed warning item on their labels to reflect the risk of secondary T-cell cancers. This decision follows an investigation into the new safety signal from post-marketing adverse event reports and clinical trials. In today's episode, Fierce Pharma's Angus Liu talks with regulatory experts Dr. Mwango Kashoki and Dr. Steve Winitsky to understand the rationale behind the FDA's decision and to discuss its implications for CAR-T candidates and their developers down the line. Let's dive into the conversation now. everybody. Welcome to The Top Line. I'm Angus Liu, senior writer with Fierce Pharma. So today we're going to talk about a new class-wide box warning that the FDA is asking on the labels of all marketed CAR-T therapies. Now, both Mwango and Steve had previously worked at the FDA for over 10 years, so they have a lot of insights to offer on this topic. So a quick recap first. The FDA announced an investigation in November. The focus was on secondary T-cell cancers observed in patients following treatment with commercially available CAR-T therapies. Then last month, the agency asked the companies to include T-cell malignancies in those treatments box warning section. And the agency said it it considers this risk to be applicable, and I quote, to all BCMA and CD19-directed genetically modified autologous T-cell immunotherapies. And I've recently asked uh, those companies, and they all said they have responded to the FDA. So maybe Mwango going to you first. The six therapies, these are Kimuraya, Iskada, Tikardas, Brianzi, Ma, and Carvigdi. They already share several boxed warning items, some of them even life-threatening ones like cytokine release syndrome. So how is this one different? Is it more serious? So the risk of secondary malignancies isn't necessarily more serious. And I would explain that the inclusion of the secondary malignancies in the boxed warning is really consistent with all of the FDA regulations around what should be described in the boxed warning sections. I'll give a little bit of context for the answer here. So what's really different in the circumstance that has led to the requirement for the boxed warning, the safety labeling change to include this as a boxed warning, is that there's now more information about the risk of secondary malignancies. The current approved labeling for CAR-T products, as you said, includes warnings for cytokine release syndrome, as well as the neurologic toxicities that can occur with or after cytokine release syndrome has occurred. And these particular events, the cytokine release syndrome and the neurologic toxicities were observed in the clinical trials that were conducted to support the CAR-T products that are approved to date. And, And 
these events are explained by the product's mechanisms of action. The secondary malignancies are also a potential risk of the CAR-T mechanism and are already described in the warnings and precautions section, but it simply states that these, the secondary malignancies may develop. And right. that's largely because at the time that the products were approved, the risk of secondary malignancies was theoretical. Events hadn't been seen in the trials because mm. of limited duration of follow-up. Mm. So it's now been several years since the CAR-T products have been approved. There have been additional trials, more patients treated. So there's post-approval experience uh, with the products. And that's what's led to the observation of the events that were um, the FDA has described and mm. has required that be included in the labeling. So mm. all of this evolution in the labeling to include the secondary malignancies in the box warnings consisted with what the agency does when it um, has a, con- a potential concern and then an observed event occurring in, in a degree that you can uh, so show a strong relationship or a causal relationship with the product's use. Mm. And therefore, the FDA has taken an action under its regulations to say this information should be described in the labeling so that the healthcare provider and the patient can mm. understand the risk and make better informed decisions about the use of the drug. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the mechanism of a uh, box warning. First of all, If we can look at the recent class warning for JAK inhibitors, at least we saw some clear evidence of an increased risk from a clinical trial. But here we only know there has been a few secondary T-cell cancer cases, but don't know if any of them is even related to or caused by the CAR-T therapy. So just curious, what's the rationale to penalize the drugs here when you, we don't exactly have a clinical trial to, to say this is because of the CAR-Ts. Secondly, why are we doing this to the entire class? What are some of the elements that could trigger an assessment of a potential class-wide warning versus a single drug? Mwango, you want to take that? Sure. So to address the first part of your question, when including risk information in the label, the information that's included is what's necessary for patients, providers to understand how to appropriately and safely use the drug and to have an understanding of what would be the expected benefits. The information about risk doesn't have to be definitive, so to speak. So it's not absolutely required to that the adverse event that's described in the labeling have been observed in a clinical trial, has been causally shown to be associated. Theoretical risks can be described in the labeling. Now, when it comes to boxed warnings, there are regulations that describe what, and there is also FDA guidance, that describe when a particular risk of concern should be labeled in a box. And so this is typically when the the adverse effect is so serious that when compared to the potential benefit, it's essential that the risk be communicated and therefore and considered by the healthcare provider and the patient. So as I said, to, to make sure that they are making the right benefit risk decisions, or even when there's steps necessary to take it by the healthcare provider, by the patient, in order to prevent or mitigate the risk of, of, of occurrence. So it, that's the, the first part. And the second part was with regard to why class-wide labeling. So when the agency determines that there's new information about a serious risk, 
and this risk applies to an entire class of drugs. The agency has the authority to require safety labeling changes for all of the drugs in the class to reflect that new information. So in the case of the CAR-Ts, from the reports that had come from persons that had been in clinical trials and the post-marketing reports of secondary malignancies, there was enough information around the occurrence of those events that the agency can conclude a causal relationship. And what was most telling about these observed cases is that in, in a handful, there was evidence that the of the uh, CAR uh, transgene in the tumors of the patients who had developed secondary T-cell cancers. And so that reflected that the uh, uh, genetic uh, material, the DNA from the CAR T-cells had inserted into the now uncontrolled proliferating tumor cells and was therefore consistent with the theoretical risk of insertional mutagenesis with subsequent development of tumor growth. Just because all these therapies use the CAR construct, even if just one seeing that the con- that the CAR uh, was inserted into the tumor, there's a possibility for the entire class uh, to have that risk. The FDA currently is uh, implementing this box warning on the existing six products. Just based on the language that the FDA uh, has uh, required, uh, will all future BCMA, CD19, autologous CAR-Ts have the same box warning, Mwanko? Yes, they, they will. And that's actually stated in the FDA's safety labeling change requirement letter to the CAR-T sponsors that the agency said that this risk, they consider the risk to apply to all of those drugs that you've just described. And therefore, we can expect, and this has been shown by precedent in the past, that the box warning will be applied to all future products. Now, this is until or unless, right, an individual CAR-T product sponsor has information to show that their product, their individual CAR-T has a different likelihood of occurrence, severity, or other characteristics that would justify having different labeling from the class. And so it may be through their particular CAR-T drugs engineering or other monitoring Mm. that they've done that they have evidence to say the risk is less or doesn't even occur. But that's a pretty high bar. Yeah, Steve, maybe you could talk about what kind of evidence would be needed for maybe one product or even the entire class to be able to shake this off to remove this boxed warning. What kind of evidence is needed? the bar is going to be quite high for the class to, to really shake this off. The CAR sequence that, that was detected in at least three of the tumors of the roughly 20 tumors that were identified in the patients who had received these CAR products, that really is strong circumstantial evidence that the CAR-T product, the process at least, played a role in causality. There was a really nice paper, Bruce Levine, Carl June and other leaders in the field, a commentary piece where they explained that even when they could look at the publicly available information for one of those tumors that had CAR positive sequence, even that wasn't quite clear how much the CAR process had contributed to it. It looks like there may have been a clonal expansion of a cell prior to initiation of the CAR T process. Um, but they did point out that insertion into a particular locus could have exacerbated that. So a lot of those tumors, there weren't samples preserved. It can be 
challenging to identify what the true cause was. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. where one of the big challenges is that the lack of understanding of the mechanism. That's what prompted FDA, I think, to impose the, the, this uh, class box warning, because I'll, I'll just speak to my experience. I was 11 years in the cell and gene therapy office as a, a clinical reviewer. And there was always a tier of hierarchical concerns, uh, theoretical concerns, let's say, for gene-modified cell therapies. And insertional mutagenesis was at the top of that list. Yeah. I think, you know, just the stigma of trying to cure a patient of cancer, but then right. conferring another cancer on that yeah. patient, that, that alone is problematic. I think you brought up some of the other warnings, like cytokine release syndrome. And with better understanding, there's a lot better risk mitigation and treatment. And patients who undergo CRS can go on to have very successful outcomes. But a secondary malignancy is really very uh, harmful to the patient, of course. I, I think that there's a double-edged sword here because the CAR-Ts are they are targeted products. They are bioengineered products, a very complex living cell product. So you brought up the JAK inhibitors or other agents, chemotherapeutic agents that have known toxicities. So just to point out, let's say with a chemotherapeutic agents, the high potential for causing secondary malignancies, that's basically just accepted as a part of if you administer those products mm. that you have to accept that mm. risk. You're trying to have a good outcome, but accepting right. the the negative consequences. And you really, it's unclear how much each individual product could be modified to reduce that risk. Probably not. But with CAR-Ts, there's always that hope that with better understanding of the mechanism for the secondary malignancy that you could optimize the product, you could optimize the process. Mm. There are possibilities for other products that don't fit the exact characteristics of the currently approved products, which share the integrating vector nature. They're all autologous, but there, there are individual products uh, that may be able to escape the future box warning if they can prove that the unique attributes of their product, let's say a non-integrating methodology for generating the car construct. And there are companies that are working on this currently with transposons and other transient me mechanisms such as mRNA uh, delivered message that, that may not have the same risk a priori as the integrating factors. Steve, you talked about some of this um, secondary malignancies ha not having like a, a, a countermeasure, existing countermeasures that we can mitigate, like some of the CRS and the neurotoxicities that we already know of CAR-Ts. So does this new box warning item like change the benefit risk calculation of these marketed products? Especially as they are trying, we're, we're going to have that ODAC meeting, FDA advisory committee meeting soon. So does this change this calculation of benefit risk as these drugs try to move to earlier lines of treatment? Is there a new efficacy bar we could calculate to warrant the perceived 
additional risk of secondary cancer. Like for every one percent of additional risk of secondary cancers, you the FDA is going to ask one percent of extra efficacy, if you will, to see if there is going to be a new bar and where does that bar、uh, lie. That's a good question. I think there's always been a qualitative nature to the benefit risk assessment at FDA. When you're dealing with patients who have poor outcomes, even in earlier line, you may have some approved therapies, but the overall options for treatment and outcomes are, are still not optimal.、Um, if you look at the CAR T guidance that FDA just released, and、uh, that was just、uh, very recently, so after they had publicly released information of. This assessment into these、uh, T cell malignancies in CAR T treated patients. I think if you look at that guidance, you, you see that FDA's overall benefit risk assessment doesn't look like it's changed substantially. I think with commentary outside of that guidance from CBER management like Peter Marks and Nicole Verdun, you can see that they're talking mostly about individual patients. Having that discussion with their physicians about whether this the risk and benefits are suitable for them in particular, and curiously that that guidance did not actually bring up the issue of T cell malignancy. So to me, that indicates FDA is still in their early stages of investigating. There have only been low numbers, less than one percent of treated patients, even if you conservatively build in some under. Reporting from the publicly available databases, I think those elements together, those really indicate that for Hemonc, the benefit risk hasn't changed dramatically at this point in time, and so the jury's still out on that.、Mm, interesting. So, do we think that as these drugs move into earlier lines of therapy? Will we see an increased risk of these T cell malignancies, or maybe a lower risk? Is there an expectation there in terms of the frequency we might see? I think there are some competing factors there. One of the complexities with looking at cancer、uh, incidents, secondary malignancies in CAR T patients, is how heavily pretreated those patients、yeah. are.、Mm-hmm. So the underlying condition and the the prior treatments they've gotten、uh, can predispose to those secondary malignancies on their own, even without the CAR T playing a role.、Um, so when you go to earlier lines of therapy, perhaps those patients are less heavily pretreated. But the numbers are so low that it's a little hard to handicap whether that trade-off would result in a lower risk. I think、mm-hmm. the 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 prevailing thought is that risk due to integration would not necessarily be modulated by how early or late in line.、Mm-hmm. There there can be again、yeah. those other factors that I、of、think、course. any of us wouldn't be able to understand. You'd really have to see it in the with the large numbers from clinical trial and post marketing. You touched a little bit upon this earlier in your comment. Is there some of the future generations of therapies? I couldn't help but notice、uh, the FDA's language. It specifically mentioned that these are like. 
for BCMA CD19 and also autologous CAR Ts. So I was just wondering why uh, are we seeing because the mechanism is CAR insertion. Wouldn't a CAR product that tar- that has another target? also has that risk, like beyond the BCMA, beyond the CD19. And also there are some, and why also making the autologous versus the allogeneic, some of the off-the-shelf potential candidates there, because some of those allogeneic drugs also use car constructs in their products. So why is the FDA currently making those distinctions, including the target, including the autologous uh, versus allogeneic distinctions? I think a very straight interpretation of that is that all of the six approved, the currently approved CAR-Ts are either BCMA or CD19 targeting, and they are autologous. So when FDA is just articulating what uh, products this is applicable to, that's the accurate description. But Mm -hmm. in actuality, I, I don't believe that FDA feels that the CD19 or BCMA targeting nature of these cells is the critical factor in potential risk. Mm -hmm. And if there have been other antigens targeted by other approved CAR-Ts, they would have included that. I think the question of allogeneic versus autologous, that again, FDA, the strict interpretation is just that there aren't any allogeneic products approved, but they, Mm -hmm. they may be reserving judgment. They may have different considerations for ALO uh, mm. because uh, one of the issues, as we know, with durable efficacy with allogeneic products in general, not just CAR-Ts, but CAR-Ts we're talking about today, is that with lack of persistence because of immune host clearance mm. uh, of those cells, that could contribute to a lack of durable efficacy once those cells are eliminated. However, that could be advantageous in terms of mm-hmm. preventing these secondary yeah, malignancies because yeah. even if those cells do get transformed, there's a likelihood that they would be cleared immunologically. So so there may actually be different considerations for ALO. And, and again, if there were approved products, we, uh, we'd see what FDA would have said about it. Yeah. Wango, what do you think? What goes into the FDA's description of a class? How do you determine that? What should go into this dis- description of this class-wide label? What should be included in this class? You're asking a really uh, interesting question that often comes up even within the agency as to how they're going to define a particular product class. And there are um, guidelines and and policies that are applied, but you can think of a class with regard to the um, mechanism of action. Uh, So as an example, beta blockers, right, for uh, treat, used to treat hypertension and other cardiac disease. The You could uh, also think of it in terms of the effect on treat, of treatment within a condition, so diabetes drugs, right? And you can parse that down a little bit more depending on, on what needs to be considered. So, or analgesics could be considered a class based on mechanism, but then when it comes to certain requirements, it's important for the agency to be more specific. And that's where they generally would uh, look at what is the mechanism of of, of action and then what drugs fall within that grouping that we would need to be concerned about. Because again, they're aligning the risk uh, of concern to, to the particular product and which products therefore would have 
that risk. So the other aspect is the agency has to work within the, the confines and the constructs of the, its regulatory authorities. Mm. So for its safety labeling changes and the requirement to and the authority to require labeling changes for approved products, you really have to know which products are approved. And we currently have on the market uh, autologous uh, CAR-T products and the ones that were included in the in the labeling change requirement notice. And so that's why the agency has been specific. Another part that would be in the considerations is that's the class of products for which there is available data book in from the clinical trials, pre-market and post-market. So that mm. probably went into their consideration about how broadly to, to issue this requirement. It'll certainly be interesting to see with the next approval of the of a differently engineered product or an allogeneic mm-hmm. CAR T product, what kind of labeling the agency would require the mm. company to include. It could be that the labeling would be related to, but not exactly the same as had been issued in the safety labeling change requirement letter. So to say there is a risk, it's Mm. been observed in autologous CAR-Ts, it's possible that this could occur even with an allogeneic CAR-T as an example. Steve, going back to what you said, like uh, when we talked about autologous versus allogeneic, you said that uh, just because of the transient nature of uh, the kind of lack of duration, if you will, uh, among the allogeneics. So if we can think about the FDA's new requirement, just be, beside this box warning, uh, the FDA is updating its requirement for monitoring of patients who have been treated with CAR-T from just 15 years to lifelong monitoring. I was just curious, can CAR-T cells even survive that long? Just why is the agency requiring this lifelong monitoring of patients at at that point like how do you even know that when the patients have developed cancer do you even know it's going to be related to the CAR T at that point if you look at CAR Ts they have been known to persist for years in patients not all of the cells but a subset and there's always been the concern with I can speak again from my time in the agency that with these complex living cell therapies, there, there are mechanisms that aren't really that intuitive. The cell could fuse with another cell, and that fused cell could have different longevity considerations than for the CAR-T, the allo-CAR-T itself. The cellular products can also influence uh, positively and negatively other cells to to adopt, let's say a negative aspect would be adoption of a malignant phenotype influenced by an administered allo cell therapy, including CAR-Ts. So I think that's the uncertainty and the time course for looking at products, how they can manifest, that there could be a delayed, if you look at the long-term follow-up guidance from FDA, talking about delayed adverse events that when there isn't a lot of information and the field itself, just with the approvals about six uh, plus years for CAR-Ts, that lack of information for the class, we're gaining new information. And just cell and gene therapies in particular having limited experience compared to other pharmaceutical classes, that alone will prompt FDA to be very cautious. Uh, I will point out, unfortunately, that with for a lot of patients with cancer who receive CAR-Ts, the life expectancy will be shortened and they may not even reach the the 15-year 
follow-up. And, and that may be quite a bit different for other non-hematologic oncologic indications mm-hmm. where patients do have uh, a fairly normal or normal uh, expected survival. We just uh, saw some very encouraging data for CAR T cell therapy in autoimmune diseases, having this very impressive data early, though, published in the New England Journal of Medicine about using CAR T against those autoimmune diseases. So maybe you could both talk about a little bit uh, on just these new next generation CAR T therapies targeting diseases beyond like some of the very serious oncology uh, indications. How should these companies approach, again, these are, again, also CAR-T therapies. So how should they approach the benefit-risk question? What should they pay attention to in devising their clinical trial development strategies? Those, some of those early reports are very promising that CAR-Ts, which were really once restricted to hemonc that there can be successful application in, in, in other indications. One thing, again, we talked about the benefit risk. If that patient would have a normal, let's say, or close to normal expected lifespan, how would the benefit risk be altered for that compared to the hemonc indication? So, so I think what FDA reviewers have usually done in this sort of case when uh, there's a new indication being studied for a product class that there's not a lot of experience with, and there's an actual risk identified, not just a, a theoretical risk. They usually do ramp up their risk portion of that equation, mm-hmm. the benefit mm-hmm. risk. Mm-hmm. And what that results in usually is changing the study population that you're already picking a high risk study population for poor outcomes. And then you may have to go to a higher risk subset even of that high risk population for the benefit risk to be yeah. sufficiently favorable to, to receive the CAR-T for a, a non-hemonc indication. And what, yeah. what I would recommend to any sponsors who are studying CAR-Ts outside of the hemonc space is really pay close attention to developments on this T-cell malignancy issue for CAR-T products that are being used for hemonc indications because there's really going to be an overwhelmingly larger number of patients, much richer data uh, Mm. to indicate what could be the mechanism of action, what could be the overall risk for for the product class. And and that would be very important because for these non-hemonc indications, there are some anecdotal reports, but they're really low patient numbers. and, And you're going to need large numbers to, to elucidate the risk. Interesting. Wango, do you compare with some of the oncology indications? Is there going to be like some additional analysis needed in a new drug uh, application moving forward for the CAR-T therapies, uh, whether it's in autoimmune diseases or other indications uh, yeah. moving forward given the T-cell risk? I think that certainly for these conditions that may not be immediately life-threatening but have significant morbidity, that the and as well as um, expectation of a comparative longer, greater longevity, that there would be a concern around how do we best 
characterize the risk of the secondary malignancies, number one, as well as how do we optimize the the CAR-T product that's going to be delivered to these patients and then make sure that it's the right patient population to receive these drugs. I think that there'll be a lot of emphasis on making sure that based on what we know right now and the advances that are happening in terms of CAR-T product development, uh, the design, the engineering, the the non-clinical monitoring, and so on, that there'll be an expectation that those those considerations will be carefully made and that companies will be doing everything that they can to really have the best design product possible for administration. When it comes to patient assessment analysis of data, this is where I think the agencies requirement for the long-term follow-up, the post-marketing studies comes into play in in greater um, detail because they'll want to be able to, as best they can, quantify as well as further qualify this risk of secondary malignancy so that they can be able to identify the best population in these non malignant populations that would be suitable for treatment because, again, it's a benefit-risk assessment that's largely qualitative, and it's made at the individual patient level for that healthcare provider who's supposed who's trying to help the patient identify their best therapy. So maximizing the information about the product, its characteristics, its likelihood of this risk of concern, and having much more data, longer-term data, so that can be it better explained uh, to patients would come into play. The other thing that the agency has in its armamentarium, which it may not want to use, but it has available, is what is known as a risk evaluation and system, a REMS, right? And so, again, because of the difference in the benefit risk assessment, the agency might determine that a REMS of some form, again, I'm foretelling, not necessarily foretelling, rather, I'm anticipating, right? Or theorizing, I should say is the better word, that the agency could say, well, in order to ensure benefits outweigh risk, we need to put other mechanisms to best protect patients. Maybe it might be around ensuring the right patient selection or ensuring providers know how to monitor, et cetera. Mm. So there could be differences for these additional expanded treatment indicators. Thank you so much, Steve and Wango, for your insights into this CAR-T box warning episode. That's it for The Top Line. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.